Welcome back to another episode of the Student Perspective Series. Today, we are joined by Sharia Tai, PhD student at USF. So Sharia, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so my, my background, uh, I originally wanted to follow the LMHC path. I got my associates in counseling and human services. Um, I had a couple internships where I worked at the Child Abuse Council, uh, DACO, which is a drug rehab facility, um, ended up taking a position at DACO. I really enjoyed um, working with that population. Um, I went on for my bachelor's, uh, majored in behavioral health care. Um, I finished all of my courses in, in my bachelor's and I just had a couple credit hours that I needed to fill to graduate. So I was taking fun classes like boot camp fitness, tennis, astronomy, and then I saw a flyer in the hallway for like uh, fundamentals of applied behavior analysis. I thought that course sounded super cool. Um, so I took that and completely fell in love with ABA, like never heard of ABA before. And it was just um, a really cool concept, like behavior change without medication, like and manipulating the environment and um, to, to you know trigger behaviors and address behaviors. And it was super cool concept to me. Um, my professor in that class, um, Victoria Fogel, she uh, did her master's thesis with a gymnast and I was I played sports all my life. Um, I coached football for many years and like that was also like one of my passions and always thought it was just gonna be like a side hobby. Finding ABA and then realizing that I can combine it with sports, I was like, this is what I wanna do. So I stayed an extra semester for my bachelor's just so I could take that ABA minor courses, um, got approval to take them all in uh, one semester. So I minored in ABA and then went on to my master's in ABA also at USF and worked in the field for a while and decided to go back and get my PhD. Awesome. That's very cool. I don't think I realized that all of your classes or like degrees were from USF. That's really cool. Yeah. I love USF. <laughs> That's awesome. You mentioned that one of your first professors had done research in ABA and sports, um, and then that was a really big passion of yours. Is that the only area that you have worked in, or have you done other things, and where are your interests and passions along those lines? Yeah, um, so during uh, that program, um, obviously it's focused on kids with autism and other developmental disabilities, which learning more about, I really like that. Um, during the practicum course in that undergrad program um, at USF, there was a practicum fair where they brought in a bunch of supervisors and local clinics to kind of advertise their clinics and their jobs and kind of recruit a bunch of behavior techs. RBT didn't exist at that time. So I gravitated towards this one clinic that focused in on early intervention. Um, so working with the five and under kids, completely loved it. It was really one of the first times that I worked so directly with the little kids and just watching like language development and behaviors. And I, I really enjoyed that. So even more reason to kind of pursue that, that BCBA with the idea that I would just have the sports stuff as like my research focus and then getting my BCBA, obviously, to, to do that. Um, just kind of like something fun on the side. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where where it lies as far as my, my interest and in how I kind of got into the field. Very cool. So you mentioned that you had kind of maybe always had this plan to pursue research in sports. When I hear that somebody wants to pursue research, I immediately think, oh, they're going to get a PhD. 
which obviously you are currently a PhD student, but was that always your plan? It wasn't always my plan, um, that's for sure. So getting into the master's program, um, USF's master's program is heavily focused on research. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked research and that scientific side of things. Uh, so I, I thought that would be really cool to do some research projects. Um, they had master's students coming in and presenting in the undergrad program, all of their research ideas and, and their thesis projects. And it some of them were so creative. I was like, man, this is gonna be so much fun to do research. Um, and then having that professor who did her research in gymnastics, I was like, I'm going to do something with football. Yeah. Um, that's going to be so much fun. And then doing like um, little like lit reviews. There, there wasn't much done at that time. Back then it was 20, 2013, 2014. So there wasn't much um, in the way of like football research. Mm -hmm. It was just a couple studies from like Stokes, Luiselli and mm -hmm. uh, Harrison Piles in 2013, I think. They, they did a couple football studies that I kind of modeled mine after. Yeah. And that's kind of where I kind of progressed with the sports research. Um, so during my master's, um, my thesis, I used uh, behavioral skills training to teach safer tackling skills to youth football players, um, really focusing in on keeping their head out of the out of the tackle, trying to make it safer, trying to make the tackle more efficient, reduce injuries. Um, it was really successful. I had a lot of parent interest afterwards, a lot of interest from, from other coaches. Um, so even after the study was done, I was getting questions and emails and people wanting me to work with their team and, and work with their kids. And it, it was from all of those inquiries, I was like, this could be something like I could, I could do something with this. There's so many people that, that want this service that saw value in it, oh, which was super cool. Like, like I have my passions and it's yeah. just, uh, it's just so cool to see that other people think it's cool, yeah. um, that other people are interested in it. So it was, it was really cool to, to kind of see um, how much interest there was in it. Um, so while I was still working as a full-time BCB after getting my master's, um, 2017, I opened up um, ABA Precision Athletic Training and kind of just did that on the side as well. So I always worked full-time as a BCBA with, you know, my, my autism kids and developmental disabilities. But then I also had that sports stuff on the side that I did on weekends and nights and yeah, whatnot. That, that is so cool. You sent me your, actually, you didn't send me your company. You told me about your company <laughs> and I looked it up. Um, but I found your company through our conversations and I was like, this is so cool. Like, I love that people aren't just talking about this, but that someone is actually doing something with this and that, that there's enough interest to have a business. Um, I think that's awesome. And we will have a link to the website in the show notes. So thank you so much. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still crazy to me that, that people pay me for this because it just yeah. feels, it feels like fun. Like I, I just love doing this. Um, I love like looking at a skill and breaking it down and then fixing it and watching it, you know, succeed. It's, it's cool. And then just working out there with the athletes, different sports, um, different levels. It's, it's so much fun. I'm thankful that I found this field and, um, was able to combine like everything that I love and make it my career. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my sports experience is in cheerleading. Mm -hmm. Um, so I would feel decently confident going to a cheer team or a dance team or gymnastics or something like that. And going and applying what I know about the science of behavior to help them with their performance. 
for you, where you say that you have had a lot of experience with football, if somebody were to come to you with a sport that you are less familiar with, um, what does that process look like for you? How much uh, knowledge do you need about that sport? What does that look like? Well, I would definitely say you need some basic knowledge of the sport. Um, I mean, the cool thing about behavior analysis is like, as long as you're able to see the behavior and uh, be able to break down the the steps of that behavior, um, you're kind of able to see it in somebody else and like what what they need to improve on, what steps they're hitting, what steps they're not hitting. You have like so many tools to to teach that. You do need that basic knowledge though. So when it comes to like a sport, like I've had somebody uh, approach me out golf swing. I know the most I've ever done is putt putt and top golf. And yeah. I am not, not fluent in either. So what I did is I, I studied videos and videos and videos, developed a task analysis. And then I brought it to uh, my friend who teaches um, at IMG mm-hmm. and uh, had him look over it. Actually, I don't know if he's still teaching at IMG, but he was at the time. Um, and he would look over it and make sure and kind of correct it. Um, so one of the main things is validating that task analysis by an expert. So when you're creating that task analysis, you you need a, a second person who is very familiar with that sport to validate that task analysis. So you make sure that you're teaching it correctly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's usually what I do. If it's way out of my league, like gymnastics or dance, I refer them to somebody else. Very cool. I'm definitely not comfortable with, with those kinds of movements. Yeah. And, and I would be, would be a great team because I am absolutely <laughs> not comfortable with like football. I, I know that the ball needs to go from one end of the field to the other. That's about it. Yeah. If I get any cheerleaders, I'll send them your way. Perfect. Sounds great. <laughs> um, so you have your company right now and you're working on your PhD. Um, who are you working under? For my PhD, I'm working under Dr. Raymond Milkberger. If you're familiar with sports research at all, I don't think there's anybody else <laughs> to work under. Yeah, he's. I'm just so fortunate he's at USF, so I didn't really have to move and, and travel. But he he would be the guy that I would go to. Yeah. Um, no matter where he was at. Yeah. With um, studying sports and ABA. Yeah. That's awesome. So, did you always intend to be pursuing your PhD while owning a business? Absolutely not. And I don't recommend it. <laughs> I don't sleep much. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to handle. I really had to cut back that first semester and and life just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like it's, you really kind of have to focus in and prioritize. Um, I cut back quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, kind of increased my waiting list, but school had to come first. Right. Um, so focusing on school and then when I can, I I do the company stuff. Yeah. Um, over the summer, um, swimming is a big one. So I had like seven swim clients. Um, I did have a couple still on the on the waiting list, but seven was my max that I could fit in. So kind of just knowing your limits um, of what you can do. I also dialed back on my regular caseload that I have okay. with a clinic that I still work at. Okay. That was going to be another question was <laughs> if you still had um, more of your like, quote unquote, typical ABA work. Um, so it sounds like you do just not maybe full-time. Yes. I, um, I don't, I don't think I could ever stop working with the the typical yeah. ABA work. Um, I love working with kids with autism. I love training RBTs. I love working with parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, uh, something that will also stay in my life. 
That's awesome. So you have talked a little bit about, you know, knowing your limits and um, cutting back where you need to. Do you have any other advice for balancing life, school, and all of those other things? Yeah, people stress balance a lot, but it really, really is important. All aspects, not just balancing like social life and school and work and school, like they all have to be there. You have to have time for yourself where you can just sit, have a cup of coffee and not think about anything um, or just, you know, go to the gym, have that me time, like take a long bath. I don't know, whatever it is, you have to have that me time just where you, where you don't think about anything and you just like enjoy life for a second, nice and calm. And then you still have to maintain that social life. Like we're social creatures. Like we still have to hang out with those friends. Um, just to kind of maintain mental health um, also. And then work, of course, work being school and, you know, your caseload. If any of those slips, it the whole thing just kind of breaks down. Like if I don't have my me time to like center myself and, and regain um, some sort of like calm, <laughs> it's a, uh, uh, everything else just sort of falls apart. If I start slipping in school, then I'm stressed and anxious. And then I can't spend enough time, you know, at the gym or with my friends mm -hmm. and uh, that stuff starts failing. If I start slipping in, in the social aspect, of course, then I feel guilty for, you know, not checking in on my friends and hanging out there and doing the me time. And it, it's just, it all just falls apart if you slip up in any area. So it's important that like when it's time to work, like when I'm at school, I'm going hard from the time I'm there to the time I leave. It is work. Turn my phone off or at least on silent somewhat um, and focus in that way. When I get home, I am not bringing that home. I'm doing as much as I can there. When I get home. That's my me time. Like that's my safe space. I will answer emergency emails only and um, so on. And then weekends, you know, social or whatever it is. Um, just doing things that I enjoy doing and then having everything in its place well-balanced is honestly the key, but that is not easy to do. I highly recommend therapy to help balance everything out. Um, it's it's so easy to kind of get caught up, uh, especially in a PhD program that's very intense, that requires so much of your time. It's it's super important. Yeah, I fully second <laughs> therapy yeah. is the best. It really is. I will never not be in therapy. That's that's staying with me. I second that. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that we mostly market this podcast to students. And just in case there are any students listening who don't know, most universities do give students access to counseling services. Mm -hmm. um, so if you are not a student, highly recommend therapy also. <laughs> but if you are a student, you probably have access to therapy through your university. Yeah, those services are uh, definitely available and should be used. So going back to research and specifically what you're doing with your company and with sports, we have a little bit more uh, research into sports than when you were doing your thesis, right? Mm -hmm. Your thesis, yeah. Yes. So we have a little bit more research now than we did when you were doing your thesis, but the ABA and sports research base is still pretty small. Um, so how do you utilize research um, to inform what you're doing? That's a great question. Yeah, there's, in comparison to the rest of the field, there's definitely not as much research in, in health, sports, and fitness. Um, I think in the last like 20 years, but there's been 40 single subject designs that have been 
published. Um, it is really cool to see how how many sports are included in that. I mean, there's there's like two studies done on rock climbing and yes. there's like figure skating and, and yeah. gymnastics. It's it's really cool, along with you know, football and dance right. studies too that have become pretty popular. So it I think the research right now it really kind of focuses in on just kind of proving that ABA techniques and tools are effective in this area, also outside of autism. Um, so I think where that research focuses in right now is just like these techniques are also working here. Um, so you have your the techniques for skill acquisition that we use for kids with autism that are also effective in in teaching skill acquisition for sports and and for improving performance of athletes, um, which I think is super cool. So with all of that, you can kind of see what tools you can use, um, what behaviors have been looked at for athletes and how it can apply to the clients that that will come to me. So I have a lot of even even clients outside of you know, physical sports. I have a couple clients that are trying to quit smoking. I have some that are working on water anxiety. Like my smoking client, just a changing criterion design and just being able to set those goals and she's able to see it and graph it. And, and she, she doesn't like when she misses a data point when it has a nice steady pattern. And then you see this data point go up and she's mm -hmm. like, no, it's supposed to go down. And um, just little things like that. It's been really cool to kind of see it. Yeah. Um, applied to to this stuff and and it be effective yeah with changing criterion designs like one of the things that at least in my classes we always talk about is that bi-directional change right mm -hmm. but when you're working with a real client who it sounds like is very reinforced by their graph mm -hmm. um, is that an instance where you would explain a bi-directional change with them would you just not do that and every data point goes down what would you do I so I, I do explain it to an extent yeah. um, and how it's kind of adapted to their specific goals. Mm -hmm. Like obviously with smoking, I'm not going to, you know, raise the goal to kind of show experimental control. We're just going to, we're just going to go down. We're, we're not going to, yeah. you know, up it this week. Yeah. Um, so it really, it really depends on that specific client. When it comes to research, yeah, you're going to need to show a little bit more of that bi-directional change to show that experimental control. When it comes to practice, it's a little bit different. You, you just want to see it go down yeah. or up, depending on what it is. Right. Um, so you're not really trying to show that control like you would in research. It's just we want to see you increase your running mileage or decrease mm -hmm. your smoking habits. Um, so you want it to only go in one direction. Interesting. Sometimes I feel like I'm behind on like research type things because I am like, I feel like I'm learning. Given that we're talking about kind of limited research in sports, you know, without going into specifics, what kind of uh, research gaps do you think that we have and that you're hoping to see kind of close those gaps in the future? Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited about where the ABA research in sports is, is heading. Yeah. Um, I think we we did a really good job the last, you know, couple decades of showing the application of ABA into sports. Now we need to take it to the next level. Like, okay, we, we show that all of these things, they, they work, they work yeah. with sports that we can improve performance. Going from there, the current literature, there's, there's not much follow-up. Like in, in yeah. the last like 20 years, uh, the 40 studies that have been published, only 14 of them did a follow-up. And what was interesting was if you look at those 14 studies that, that did do the, the follow-up to see if the skills maintained, only a all the studies that where the follow-up was done within three weeks showed and showed that the skills maintained. Anything after three weeks, 
the skills didn't maintain and need to be retaught. It's really interesting, right? Like, why isn't it maintaining after three weeks? Yeah. And I mean, if you think about like athletes, they're, they're pretty rule governed. You tell them to do this, they're going to do it. It, whether that's actually uh, how they learn best or reinforcing to them, mm-hmm. that's not that's not really evaluated. Yeah. We don't really see anybody even asking them like if attention is what what's reinforcing. So mm-hmm. a good job from you know the coach or the researcher might not mean anything if they don't care about your opinion. They're just right. there to do their thing. Um, so it really kind of kind of depends, and you don't really see that done. Also, maybe it, it's just dense schedule like mm-hmm. of reinforcement is yeah. now gone they're going right. back to regular coaching so during the the studies you know constant you know reinforcement mm-hmm. like yes you're doing this you know if this is good we got to work on this like yeah. good job you know like yeah. all of the all of those things they're hitting their goals improving on the skills which you would think would be like reinforcing enough for the athlete just improvement mm-hmm. um, but not for all of them yeah. and there's no reinforcer assessment yeah. conducted so there's there's missing that aspect of it is like maybe this isn't reinforcing for them maybe just improving the skill isn't reinforcing like what is it that's maintaining that why isn't the skill maintaining like what what is happening and I think that's where research kind of needs to look at we need to figure out why these skills aren't aren't maintaining long term and I mean some of them are some of them aren't but why what's what's the difference yeah and nobody really looks at what is reinforcing to the athlete and I think that's where the science might need to look into next yeah is is trying to figure that out whenever I have a conversation with somebody about sports and ABA research it seems like very often they think that I'm talking about using an intervention to help a coach be a better coach Mm -hmm. Um, and that is often not what I'm talking about but I do think that could be an interesting line of research especially you know, if, if we could maybe change some coach behavior as we change athlete behavior, would skills maintain better? Definitely an interesting research question and should be looked into because if, if it is something along those, those lines of not, no longer having that dense schedule of reinforcement that they do during the studies, having the coaches be able to provide that um, definitely would, would be something to look at behavioral coaching. Yeah. It's a thing um, that needs to be looked at even more. Yeah. I, definitely agree with that yeah and I mean even in just my own experiences with having a coach oftentimes uh their attention is quite negative if they're talking to you at least your my cheer teams have been rather large so if they are giving you direct feedback it's probably negative it's probably punishing your behavior um which I mean we can have a whole conversation about that because it's probably a safety problem and so yeah, you you see that a lot. Like um, with with I I still play football. Um, yeah. so I like even in my my own coaches, like yeah. it's the feedback isn't specific. It's right. it's very broad. Like do that better. Yeah, like you missed that, but it's not like going over like you you nailed this part, mm-hmm. but you need to work on this. It's yeah. it's it's very broad. Um, yeah. it's just like try that again. Yeah, I'm like what part did I miss? Like right. I thought I nailed that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but obviously I didn't because yeah. you make me do it again. Um, so it's it's uh, it definitely needs to be more talked about for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, and I feel like ABA can definitely provide those enhanced coaching performance procedures. Yes, definitely. One thing that is incredibly common in cheerleading, specifically with stunting, <laughs> if your flyer, if the person who's in the air falls before they're supposed to, and you know whether they get caught or 
they actually fall or whatever, it is almost always blamed on the people holding them in the air. And as somebody who did that position of holding somebody in the air, it is not always my fault. <laughs> um, yeah. Sometimes it is. Um, but I, I wonder if, if, at least in your experience, have when you have gotten that direct feedback and specific feedback, it's not always accurate. Going back to like my, when I was doing that football study with, yeah. with the youth football players, going out there and, and hearing the coaches commenting uh, about the tackles that they were yeah. making. A lot of, a lot of the inappropriate techniques were getting brushed off because the tackle was successful in stopping the player with the ball. Like he let in with his head and you're telling him it was a good tackle because he was able to stop the, the guy with the ball. Like, yeah. you know, good job, you know? And I was like, you, you never he let in with his head he's nine right. years old like yeah we should stop yeah. that like that was not a good tackle yeah like, it was successful and a lot of those things um get pushed aside because they're successful at it and that's kind of what matters in a game is the the wins and the losses you, you're you're not really going to pay attention oh I think now like the focus is kind of turned a little bit more towards that you see it a lot in the NFL right now and what happened with uh Tua a few weeks ago like it, it's brought more attention like okay it might not be just about the wins, right? We have to, we have to take care of these players. Um, so I think the focus, hopefully it sticks this time. Like hopefully focuses yes. in more on safer techniques for the, for the games rather than just whether you, you put it all on the line to get that win. That's one of my big like interests um, is like culture change. And I think about that a lot, especially within sports where the number one thing is that win sometimes at any cost. And how do we change that culture to ensure physical safety, to ensure emotional safety of our athletes? I, I think that there's a lot of things that could be changed. Yeah, that's why we need like a BCBA on every major sports team. Yeah, yes. <laughs> to work on those things. I was pretty severely injured on my high school cheer team. So I have like a special place in my heart for high school athletes. Mm -hmm. And I think every, every school district needs a BCBA to <laughs> help their athletes yeah yeah to um I, I definitely see that that's that's one of my main goals like working in practice and then going back for the PhD and and everything it's just I, I want to get to the point where like having a behavior analyst on your coaching staff is just as normal as having you know the personal trainer the strength and conditioning coach the nutritionist as part of the staff like there needs to be a behavior analyst to to work on those things and also help with the coaches like yeah. and the coaching behaviors um it's there's such a benefit all around and it's kind of twofold like being able to help the coaches coach these players better in a way that's you know more effective for them and then also being able to break down those techniques with the players reteach it so it's it's safer gameplay yeah going back to your company do you get both types of clients or do you have one more often than the other um I would say I get more skill acquisition yeah. than anything. I do have um, a, a coach that I was working with for a while. He coached basketball and working with him on how to use like behavioral skills training and, mm -hmm. and how to use video feedback and, yeah. and video modeling to to teach skills to to his players. So I do have I do have quite a mix. Yeah. Um, but I would say more often it's skill acquisition, especially with my swimmers learning how yeah. to how to swim. And do you most often work? one-on-one -on -one or with a group or a team one-on-one -on -one. I've I've worked with um like a 
two football players at a time, mm -hmm. um, but the teaching is one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah. So I, I was working with um, a center on, on their technique and a quarterback on their technique. So they yeah. kind of, I was able to coach them together because, you know, the center needs a quarterback to throw them the ball, yeah. um, hike them the ball. And uh, um, so quarterback gets a break. I'm going to work one-on-one mm -hmm. -on -one with the center. Center gets a break. I'm going to work one-on-one -on -one with the quarterback and kind of do two at a time that way. But it's always like the teaching is one-on-one. -on -one. That's awesome. How much longer do you have before graduation? I have about a year and a half. Um, so I'm finished with courses this semester and then it's just research from here. What do you anticipate doing after you graduate with your PhD? That's a great question. I wanna do everything and I know I can't do everything. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to narrow this down. I really enjoy teaching. So the, the PhD program at USF really focuses in on teaching teachers yeah. really. So our first semester we are co-instructing a, a course in the minor program and then the next few semesters we're teaching by ourselves in those programs mm -hmm. um then your second and third year you're teaching in the online master's program um so it really you get a, a great experience so you have your your mentor and then you kind of do the in-person classes solo while still like having weekly meetings yeah. with like uh, Dr. Millenberger and, okay. and the other advisors, and then uh, switching over to online. So you have that online experience and okay. teaching and building those courses. So it's it's a really great program. And I really kind of found a, a love for for teaching. So I can't imagine not teaching. Yeah. However, I also can't imagine not working with my kids with autism and yeah. I, I'm not getting rid of my company either. So like if I could find a world where I could do all three, mm -hmm. yes. If not, I would probably just focus in on, on my company, mm -hmm. um, building that. Yeah. And then once I can no longer work direct and I hand that off, um, I, I do plan on teaching. Just a couple more questions. Um, mm -hmm. Where do you see the field of behavior analysis going, especially in terms of health, sport, and fitness? Oh man, it's growing so fast. There's so much interest. Like just in the last couple of years, like the amount of interest that has popped up, I've gotten more requests for interns and, and supervisees in the last couple of years than I than I have since I opened the company. I love seeing the interest. Um, however, like with it growing so fast, I think we need to start setting in some some guidelines like mm -hmm. scope of competence and scope of practice like we have to stay in our lane to make sure that this does grow i like i said earlier like i really want to see long term goal just a behavior analyst part of just part of the the coaching staff on on all the sports teams um it's definitely needed and i could see that being a thing um there's also clinics and companies popping up you know, all over the place that that focuses in like on the the individual athlete and kind of like helping with like personal training and, and yeah. things like that. I could really see it becoming like a almost like comp not competition, but right there along with personal trainers, like hmm. you know, behavior yeah. analysts to keep you sticking to your gym right. routine. You need to work with a behavior analyst to help you with sticking to that nutrition plan. Yeah. I see a lot of behavior analysts right now kind of going for like those personal training certificates to to yeah. kind of combine that um which is cool because right now if, if you're it's out, outside of the scope of competence yeah. here like scope right. practice like you you behavior analysts should not be designing gym routines right unless you're certified in that area yeah for me personally that's not something that I I would touch like yeah it's it's you focus in on 
on the client first, like mm-hmm. what's best for the client. I could go online and, and get a personal training certificate. Right. Would that make me like the most competent to produce this individualized gym routine plan mm-hmm. for them? No, no. Right. Somebody who, you know, spent four years getting a degree in like exercise physiology, they're the ones that, you know, have all the experience and really know the ins and outs of how, you know, the heart works and the muscles work and right. what what to focus in on and how to hit these muscles. So what I do is I send them to a personal trainer to get that plan. They bring that plan back to me and I help them stick to that plan. Like yeah. we help develop goals. We'll use um, goal setting, check-ins, public posting to make sure that they're sticking to that routine. Yeah. Um, so that's where I think we need to focus in on like not really trying to do everything, yeah. staying in our lane, doing yeah. what we do. Um, and I think that will give us the the research and the credibility to kind of push this further. Yeah. If we're all over the place and we're scattered and we're trying to do more than we can, our quality is going to start suffering. Yeah. So I, I see all of these companies popping up and I see all these certifications going up and I'm just like, makes me nervous, but excited at the same time. I love the interest and yeah. I love how much it's growing. Um, I just want to make sure it's, we're, we're doing it right. Like yeah. we we are all kind of, in this together, figuring it out. And we need to make sure that as it's growing and clinics are opening up and um, we're trying to get on sports teams and show like ABA is a thing, like we we can actually help coaches coach better and athletes perform better. Mm-hmm. It needs to be done the right way. Yeah. So I, I think having more of like a standardized not not necessarily code, but like something that that we follow, like make yeah. sure when we're developing our task analysis, we are getting it checked by right. Somebody, there's no, yeah. there's no checks and balances right now. We're just kind of out there doing our thing and figuring it out. Yeah. Um, and I really hope, um, as it becomes bigger, that the field kind of adapts to that, and we do have yeah. some, some regulations to kind of go along with that. Um, I also like seeing the research kind of progress. Yeah, that's going to be exciting now that we've kind of established it, as, as we spoke about earlier. Like, what's next? Where's right. the research going to go next? Yeah, and I, I'm really excited to see that. I think it'll be very, very exciting and interesting to see kind of how all of that uh, helps to build this really, really solid um, research base. And then as we, you know, expand that base, where where else can we go? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these studies that are coming out on like ACT with athletes. And yeah. That's a really cool, I don't know, branch that mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have thought of that. What's somebody else going to think of? Yeah, um, I I like the use of of ACT um, acceptance commitment therapy um, with uh, with the athletes. That's yeah. that's definitely one. I'm not that's not my specialty. Yeah, um, but it's it's definitely a cool application. I like reading the research on it. All right, probably our last question. Wants to say something, and I'm like, ooh, new question. Do you have any final advice for other students getting a PhD or with interest in health, sports, and fitness? Um, I would just say find a good mentor. Um, I think that's super important because it's you, you want somebody to kind of help guide you along the way. I, I had Dr. Miltenberger kind of helping me and Victoria Fogel kind of set the stage for it. And uh, so having like good mentors, mm-hmm. um, super important to, uh, to find. Yeah. Um, and I will give a plug to, I don't know what episode it is, but there's an episode of the Alula series where we talked about finding mentors um, and we can link that in the show notes as well. That 
would also be a really great resource in finding mentors. For my company, I do offer um, supervision for anybody who's interested in, in learning more about health, sports, and fitness, and ABA, and how to get started, or where to go, or questions on research. So I, I do offer that for free through through my company, because I don't believe in, I'm, I know a lot of people charge for supervision, and, and you definitely should be paid for your time. But like with health, sports, and fitness, and ABA, like I personally believe that like, we need to get more people involved to, to grow this field and having quality supervision and being guided in the in the right way to do things ethically and, and staying within staying within our lane essentially. Like I, I really believe in that. So I, I do offer it for free, free supervision. And we can also put is your email on your website or yes. Okay. Should be. So we, you know, your website <laughs> is in the show notes. And um, if you're interested, you can reach out to Sharia for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Student Perspective Series within Operant Innovations. Be sure to come back next week. Operant Innovations releases episodes every Wednesday, and the Student Perspective Series comes out at least once a month. I also want to say a huge, huge thank you to Sharia Tai for being willing to meet with me today and to share your story and your interests and your thoughts. It's been an absolute pleasure and joy to have you today.